0: Healthcare, there are other other industries that have actually pretty large bureaucracies that are very similar, and they also struggle with change and they have been successful. So the good ideas are not necessarily in education. You should take inspiration from elsewhere. Weight Watchers is very simple. Uh, You have to sign yourself up. No one else can. And when you come in, you weigh yourself once a week, consistent data tracking and sharing on the same data sharing space, which is the same scale. And when you do well, they give you, hey, cool, awesome, good job. And when you don't, good job for coming in, right? Because shame is not an effective vehicle for change. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Hi everyone. Good morning. Especially anyone here from the West Coast like me. Yeah, good morning, right? Uh, super excited to be here. So honored to, especially as I'm hearing about all the incredible work, it sounds like you all have figured out change and innovation already. And, uh, but I'm hoping that what I have to share with you today will add a little bit more to your plate in terms of what you have in your repertoire around how to innovate to improve student success, especially for the students that we need to be thinking about for the new normal. But first I think, well, yes, the background that you just heard is accurate. Just like the rest of you, I bring, um, I bring myself to this work, right? I'm, I'm obviously, you know, you know, we bring our own lens and it's important to share the context that my work is informed by the fact that I grew up in poverty in rural Montana and was very unlikely to go to college. I didn't know we were poor because my parents were preppers which for those of you who don't know, you even know who those are? Yeah, there's like a reality show. So for those who don't, it's a type of person whose idea of fun is preparing for the end of the world. Yeah, they're really fun at parties. Um, Like Y2K is still too soon to talk about in my family. That was like their Super Bowl that got canceled. Yeah, so I can assure you that in the midst of a global pandemic, as the daughter of preppers, I can confirm there is no limit to the number of ways someone can say, I told you so. (laughs) Yeah, it's been super fun. Um, So like a lot of our low-income and first-generation students, I had terrible, if not, or any advice about going to college. I barely made it through high school. Uh, The only conversation I ever heard about college was when my dad would make jokes that if I wanted to go, that I should do what my brother did and win a state championship in wrestling. Yeah, so helpful. So like a lot of our students who, you know, without additional context, you like sift through all the terrible advice you're getting and you find some nuggets to follow. And so for me, what I've decided to follow from that was that if I was exceptional at something that I would get to go to college. So I put my head down and focused exclusively. Uh, yes, I wrestled for like a week. It was not a good look. I don't. You see this, no cauliflower ear, you're welcome. Um, but I did. Uh, I focused on just trying to be good at something. And so by the time I graduated high school, I totally neglected my studies and I eked out with a 2.3 GPA. And I was an undefeated state champion in debate though, which it turns out people aren't nearly as interested in mediocre students that can argue about it <laughs> as they are. Big 10 wrestlers. So that was an interesting lesson to learn at 18. So I had to figure out where am I gonna go, right? And so I stumbled to a community college. Thankfully, they let me in and, uh, but when I came to school, you know, it was like, it was six hours away, which I always recommend. It's like just far enough to get away from your weird family, but you can get back in case your car breaks down. Um, I, so I, I showed up to community college and later to university with the same kind of perspective, which we need to think about with our students. And that is that I thought, I've been socialized my whole life to respect my elders. I thought these were the smart people. Fancy titles like Dr. So-and-so and and Chancellor somebody what and so I thought when I give you all this information um, About me. I cannot tell you how hard it was to get financial information to give to the government from a prepper right, like I worked real hard and so they had this financial information about me And so when I receive a letter from my school that says you should take out X amount of dollars for me It was five thousand dollars now, I'm thinking, you know that I've literally never seen that much in my life. It's the most money I'd ever seen. And so if you, the smart people, if you send me this letter, I think that's your advice. I think that's what you're telling me what to do. You know more than me. And so I naturally assume that if I, do, if I follow the yellow brick road or the choose your own adventure map that I'm handed, that naturally you'll keep an eye on, you'll let me know if I get off course, and it'll all work out. That's what our students think. They expect we are socialized in society for a customer experience. And in education, we're uncomfortable with the word customer. But we have to recognize that when you're paying, especially when we're talking about college, that when you're paying a lot of money for something, we expect a certain degree of service. And so I naturally thought people would you know, keep me on track, but it didn't happen. At no point did an academic advisor ever reach out to me. I didn't know when to go talk to academic advisors. I hadn't been taught that skill of when, here's when the signal is that you go in and do this thing and it wasn't required. So, and nobody, apparently nobody was watching. I took super interesting classes that had a little thing to do with my program of study, but not a lot. I later transferred, I mean, transfer, it's cute. I transferred, my credits did not, right? because our systems are totally disconnected. It's so fun. Our students experience it all as if they are one person, but yet our systems are so disconnected like we've never met each other. I'm so glad that you're all in this room today though, right? K-12, higher ed, community, everybody. So I you know, barely get through, it takes me seven years to get my bachelor's degree, seven. And I had 50 extra credits I didn't need and $50,000 in student loans best case scenario. Because the vast majority of our students who have that kind of experience don't complete. In fact, half of all the students who walk through the door fail out. But the problem is we think it's fail out. It's we who have failed them. Because what I had experienced when I was doing things like not going to meet with an advisor, following a choose your own adventure map that was literally a piece of paper and not at all helpful, and no guidance about how to actually make decisions about this really complex academic journey. Um, I also didn't go to office hours because that sounds like a time when people are doing office work. We have coded language that you're lucky if you know it. What happened, what I was experiencing is something that we all have to recognize that is underlying everything that we're gonna talk about. And that is that it was perfectly designed to do this because higher education was never actually designed around students. And so this is an important fact that sometimes people resist. It was actually never designed around students. It was originally designed around the faculty because that was the only intellectual capital we had at the time when we formed universities. And we were mimicking a model from elsewhere. And over time though, Our design is really centered administration and essentially what we're being asked to do. The state board is asking for that. Okay, well, let's figure out how to do that. We at no point have the time to stop and and take a step back and think, what does our student need in this situation? I wonder what their experience is. I'm gonna work strategically on how I show up in this work. I'm gonna spend time on the design of my day-to-day experience. You don't have that luxury because you're trying to be everything to everyone. This is across all of education. Some people are uncomfortable with this and they don't believe me, but the easiest example, and this is again just for higher ed, um, is that graduation happens, right? Where um, supposedly it's something we care about. And yet at every institution, uh, when it's time to graduate, we at the institution don't know. The student has to tell us. And then when they do, we give them the reward of forms and paperwork. And lastly, we let them pay a fee. That is terrible design. We all now live in a world of user centered design. Design thinking has spread around, right? Like you all can reach in your pocket and pull out your phone and food can show up. You don't even have to talk to anyone. You can reach in your pocket and all of a sudden a car takes you somewhere and you don't even have to say anything except if you want to seem relatable and ask how long they've been driving for Uber. You know, I mean, we see, we know what good design is. We know when something was actually planned around us and we know when it's not. And so I would argue that as we think about the new normal, one of the most important things we need to recognize is that students in the new normal have the lowest tolerance for bad design. And we absolutely have to think about what their needs are in society. They are going to make decisions based on the user experience. And so if we want them to be successful, we have to actually think about the booby traps, the landmines. All of the hurdles that were set because they are convenient for us on the administrative side of the house because we have X deliverable, but they are totally not designed around students. So if you can recognize this fact that higher education was not designed around students, um, then you you're gonna everything's gonna be much easier because if it's a design problem, that means that design is the solution. It's not about laziness. It's not about intention. You don't question people's motives when it's a design problem. It's about setting people up to spend their time intentionally so they can actually do design work. Be strategic with your time. How many of you have been in a terrible meeting this week? or last week. <laughs> this meeting's been amazing. But how many of you last week, you were just like, you had a meeting that was just like, this could have been an email. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, well, the rest of you are lying, but um, that's okay, that's okay, safe space here. So um, I'm gonna talk to you about why this is problematic for us and we really need to think about, especially as we think about the students of today and the future, and that is because every system is perfectly designed to get the results it does. So the data that you're frustrated by it's actually perfectly designed to cause those kind of data results. Um, and this is a problem because if you think about the future, we're gonna need to shift our, shift our design because the design of today is woefully insufficient for the students of tomorrow. And the students of tomorrow, are, as I mentioned, they're gonna make decisions based on experience. in the few, People are all freaked out about their enrollment numbers, but if you actually work on your design and make it work for low income, first generation and students of color, and make it so that it's seamless, You're gonna be fine, and especially if you open your eyes to possibilities of other students, and not thinking about students as a stereotype, eighteen to twenty-two year olds who are able-bodied and have lots of money, and parents who tell them everything, and are like, and they have like you know khakis, and they're and they're they're exactly this idea of that nineteen like fifties model we had on a catalog. Those students still exist, but they are very much smaller. The real students of tomorrow are diverse. They are they are poor. They are older. They expect digital. Anyone who thinks that Zoom U goes away is wrong and will be struggling for enrollment. The institutions who are relieved to get back in person and just want to never turn on Zoom again, they will be in trouble but I know that you know that because you work on technology, right? Like you're you are you're the folks who are actually the ones who are trying to convince the people on campus or back at the school that maybe, you know, we don't have to use paper all the time just for that, right? Um, so the students in the new normal, the other things we need to recognize about them is they want bite size. They don't want the full meal deal. If we have to walk through the door of being enrolled and count as a student, for uh, for a student, for someone to actually gain learning, that's not gonna work for them. A lot of them want a course, maybe a little bit of a, maybe a badge, a certificate, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right? And uh, the universities are really uncomfortable with this. It's already happening where our consumers are going to Coursera and all these other places to get courses, right? They're already, they're already doing it, but we're like, no, they'll come back. They'll arrange, uh, they'll arrange childcare. They'll actually drive across town and park just so they can sit in a room and listen to something that probably could have been a podcast. They're going to do that. I promise. They're going to they don't they're not going to. No, they're not. Because I mean, I just want to also acknowledge like congratulations on wearing hard pants. You all look great. It was hard, right? Look, I see some shoes that don't look like they're just I mean, for me it was yoga pants and sneakers, right? There was no yoga. There was not. <laughs> Um, so so we all lived through the last two years and you were able to innovate and adapt and you deserve the confidence that you've earned in that time. And we're gonna need it for the path ahead, but the students in the new normal, they, they also went through that. So they're not gonna like all of a sudden black out and not remember that it's possible to do things in a way that's different. So the other things that we know about the new, these students is they expect that we take equity seriously because it's 2022. They expect that we think about sustainability because it's 2022, right? So these students are a little bit different. I would just say in general, the headline here is if you want for for institutions and if you think about higher education and what they're gonna be needing in the future, they, they have to expand their idea of who their students are. And if they don't just think about them, but they actually make sure that their systems and their process actually works for people who are like that, they will be in great shape. Because a lot of institutions think they're going to market their way out of an enrollment decline. That will—that That is not the case. There is no marketing out of this. It's a matter of experience. And it's about the fact that, frankly, there are a lot of things in the way for students and we can actually fix this. So I promise you there's good news. I'm not gonna just bum you out, um, it, but I do need you to have some context about the data of how this is showing up. Um, the other layer to think about is the challenge ahead for education in general. And that is that by, t- by 2025, we need at least, we needed at least 11 million more college graduates just for us to stay on the economic competitiveness track for our country to compete with other countries. Because now granted, Uh, I know that people love to talk trash about the college degree, but it is actually still the single best way out of poverty and the best path into social mobility. It's just that we're offering degrees for things that are like super adorable for 20 years ago, and we actually need to realign with workforce. But higher education is still incredibly relevant, and there are millions of people who need to be served but they aren't being served currently and they are not going to navigate this next economic hurdle that we're experiencing. We're all starting to get uncomfortable with the gas prices, but yet we're lucky enough to be in the knowledge economy. We don't have to go out and use, physical, use our bodies to go and earn an income, right? In the midst of COVID, we really learned a lot. So, but in general, just know that we need to educate far more people, especially low income people. So they have the same path to prosperity For far too many people, the American dream has become an illusion. And that is a huge threat to the future of our country, to the economic competitiveness of it, and our democracy. Because if people don't believe in the American dream, we are all in trouble. So we need higher ed to like figure it out and do a better job. The problem is we fail, like I said, half of all the people who walk in the door. The other thing that you need to know for context is that for the first time in US history, low-income students are now the majority in public K-12. I know a lot of you already know that, you're experiencing it. As someone who had free and reduced lunch, like this is just, this is the normal. But the problem is higher education doesn't actually, is not prepared for that. And so this is a threat for all of us because this is how poorly higher education does for students like me. This bottom line, the red one, is students from my background. If you were in the 1970s, if you were born into poverty, only six out of every hundred ended up getting a college degree. And despite all of our talk about progress and innovation, that number is like basically nine, almost no progress. But if you look at the high income line, the top one, we've doubled your likelihood of getting a college degree. That's what we talk about in terms of the achievement gap. And so what this tells you is actually a good thing, which is progress is possible. Change can happen. We can improve. We just have to actually focus on the students who are most vulnerable. And I say this because the students who are low income, and I would say first generation and students of color, they're all just students. They have an extra hurdle or backpack, but they are going through the same institution And so if you focus on their needs and making sure that your institutions work for them, then everyone does better because the things that get in the way for those students, uh, yes, they're working three jobs, but they also get a million emails that are totally unhelpful. They also have financial aid holds for things that make no sense. They also have nobody with our institutions with no data systems connected. And so nobody actually knows what's going on, right? So the the issues that they experience, if you center them and think of them as the leading indicator, you're going to be much better off. And so this is kind of the complexity. We need to serve more students. We need them to, they're gonna be more diverse. They have different expectations. Um, And so the good news is that this actually can be changed. These are the institutions I work with. Um, They are large public research universities. They have no reason to be friends. They are in a highly competitive environment. That's like a Hunger Games. That's how higher ed is. Like think of it as I'm basically trying to run the counterculture movement to uh, US News and World Report rankings, uh, trying to change what is sexy and cool so that people actually work on serving the most vulnerable students. My institutions decided to band together to try and innovate, see if they could scale what works, if they could be a part of a community of practice, if they could hold each other accountable, uh, transparently sharing their data and eliminate equity gaps. And so the reason why I'm talking about them, and this is all I need to say about them, is that their work, it's worked. We've already increased our graduates by over 100,000 students by now, above what we were expected to, Um, and that's not just by admitting more students. We did a better job with the ones we had. We've increased our graduates of color by 85%, our low-income graduates by 46%. There is nothing in higher education that's had those kinds of numbers, and uh, we're a tiny little organization, nonprofit. I think of myself as like running a Weight Watchers meeting for universities to be good at something they've never been good at right? So the principles that I've learned from watching and supporting them, they translate across education. They translate across healthcare. If you want to get better, very simple, basic stuff. I actually learned this from Weight Watchers, which, um, you know, their numbers must be doing amazing from COVID, right? Um, I don't know if you all, like, I split two pairs of pants thus far this year on stage. So that's been fun. Um, so, uh The thing about Weight Watchers, I want to share this to you not because I'm saying everyone needs, I'm saying it's an example of an improvement community that exists outside of education. Too often education is only referencing itself. We're only thinking about other education things. Healthcare, there are, other, there are other industries that have actually pretty large bureaucracies that are very similar, and they also struggle with change and they have been successful. So the good ideas are not necessarily in education. You should take inspiration from elsewhere. Weight Watchers is very simple. Uh, you have to sign yourself up, no one else can. And when you come in, you weigh yourself once a week, consistent data tracking and sharing on the same data sharing space, which is the, way, with the same scale. And when you do well, they give you, hey, cool. Awesome. Good job. And when you don't, good job for coming in, right? Because shame is not an effective vehicle for change. In my industry, in higher education, it's everywhere. And if if shame worked to drive behavior change, it would have worked. It didn't. So the thing about Weight Watchers that's actually the most important is that you go into this back room where other people are doing the same thing and are on that same journey because losing weight's hard, innovation's hard. And you actually talk about what's hard. You talk about the, the things that you're struggling with, what you failed at and what you learned from it, right? It's a community of practice space. So we literally do that. We have data sharing agreements and we actually weigh in on our equity gaps annually and we share and talk about failure and what we're learning from it. So. This is stuff that is relatable across any industry, and it's gonna be important uh, that, that's all that you need to know about the UIA, but I do wanna share with you what we've learned about how to innovate and how to serve students today. But first, you've been sitting for a while. If you're physically able, would you mind standing? Move your hips left, to the right, you're gonna shake them out stretch those legs for a bit. You all have been sitting for a while, so um, here's a fun fact, which is your brain produces a protein called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. BDNF is actually the protein that helps you grasp onto new ideas. After sitting for 20 minutes, you produce less of it. How long are our class times? How long are our lectures? 60 minutes. So from now on, when you're in a terrible meeting, BDNF break. With your students, I don't know, you're gonna to figure that out, but you should like at 20 minute intervals, that's when they start, that's when the cognitive load is just simply a little too much. So feel free to keep standing if you'd like. Normally I would play some sweet jams, but um, you know, I know it's early. It's a little aggressive. We just met. So um, feel free to sit if you'd like. Um, So I wanna, if we're gonna talk about what we need to do to innovate for student success right now, here are the things that we've learned about the challenges that get in the way for innovation. First, trigger warning, this is what you look like. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'll go back just so that you can, cause he'll keep doing that. So, uh, burnout, right? Um, we're misdiagnosing what it is. COVID was really hard. Zoom screens shouldn't be looking at for more than four hours a day, right? Basics shouldn't be sitting for that long either, right? There are things we know about human biology that really we didn't listen to. But the thing about this great resignation and burnout space that I think we need to recognize is that especially in my space, higher ed, we are misreading it. It is not about needing a vacation, although we also need that. It is actually about a lack of purpose, inspiration, and community. Those three things are the most essential thing you need right now for employees. Purpose, inspiration, and community. Those are things you could not get on Zoom. You tried. I mean, how many of you went to a terrible Zoom happy hour? Right? So bad. Kept trying, kept trying to go up that hill. So um, we have to actually know that like the fact that, you know, asking people to do more right now is very difficult. Okay. So let's just call a spade a spade. Um, But I think that all the rest of what I talk about, you need to know that the work that we do you have to build it, start from the beginning, planning that all your change work, Any new initiative, any new technology you're bringing in, start thinking about how you can embed or build it around purpose, inspiration, and community. And change is actually gonna be a space that people go to because it feels good, it feels fun. It's not that terrible meeting without an agenda. It's actually a space that feels collaborative. And there's a way to do it that doesn't cost any money. And I will make sure to give that to you. So the second thing beyond that is that this is how we looked before COVID. Education and higher education have a very problematic belief system. If I give you more work, your plate will expand. If you do good work, congratulations, more work for you, right? So the most effective people are the most overburdened. This is a problem. We have to actually restructure how we think about work. And that's not something HR is equipped to handle on its own. They do not have the innovation capacity necessary. The reason everyone cannot hire right now is not just because you need to pay more money. We have to fundamentally restructure the position descriptions one by one in our institutions. We have to rethink what things are possible virtual versus not. We have to also be open uh, to actually listening to our employees to understand what needs to shift. And if you think HR has the innovation expertise and background necessary to do that without your help, then you're wrong. So this is gonna require us all to think about how we restructure and redefine work. The other part that higher ed has, that I'm not as positive that K-12 does, but I've seen some of it, so I know I'm not totally wrong, which is when we have a new initiative or strategy that needs to happen, what we do is we find a retired person and we bring them in at 0.49, instead of actually staffing that work. I have nothing against retirees. They're some of my favorite people. But if you think about decades and decades and decades of not staffing work, and always begging, borrowing, and stealing from someone who isn't full-time, our org charts have not evolved. And that is a part of this burden, is that we think our structure is like 1952. It's it's not working, and so we have to actually be honest about those things and talk about it if we're going to try and address it. The other thing that gets in the way if you have any of these problems and you actually wanna solve them is that this is what it's like to try and ask for help, in my sector at least, where it's highly competitive. I don't feel like K-12 is as bad, um, where you know we really focus on our headlines and bragging and telling you about Here, here's what I've accomplished. I personally don't care what you've accomplished uh, if you've done it once. I only care if you have helped someone else replicate it and I wanna know what you learned from that experience and how you coached them. That is worthy work. Um, my sector has a toxic uh, kind of posturing that makes it so we aren't really candid. We don't talk about failure. And so what we do is we force other people to repeat our failures because every campus has a multimillion dollar failure that we don't talk about. And students are the ones who are gonna write those checks. And so we have to change and create social safety around talking about failure. We have to actually change our values so that our culture is actually giving us what we need to support innovation and change. And I would say that that's why I know that there are communities of practice that are supported here. And I'm so glad that you're part of them because that is actually how you get through this. It's about coming together around two things. The two reasons I think you should collaborate, shared problem or big goal that we wanna work on that I can't do alone. Those are really good reasons to bring people together. And I would say that in my sector, what I know is true is that we have the same exact same problems because our design is pretty much the same. We're all the Harvard of something No, we're not, but we tried. And we have all the same offices and we have pretty much the same structure. That's why we all have a bursar and nobody knows what that is. So uh, we have to actually create conversations around culture. And this is something that you could do by just creating social safety and starting to talk about it. So this is the other thing. Um, I go to college campuses a lot and people are always trying to show me what they're doing. And this is what it look like, looks like when I walk on their campus, just giving it the business, just trying so hard and bless their heart. If you guys have been in the gym where you see somebody doing this, this is what it's like to walk onto a college campus and you see, I'll go back. So um, it, 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 we don't ever actually, we start new things. We bring in a new technology. We don't set up a plan. We don't actually figure out how we're gonna measure whether we're successful. We don't create a new team necessarily. We're just, you know what? That's in Doug's division. Doug, your job is to solve that problem. Good luck, Doug. It doesn't matter that he's not necessarily been prepared to, like he might be working in that space, but figuring out and solving problems in that space might not be actually his jam. Maybe he's just a great manager. And so we see all these decisions that get made because somebody feels like this, well, this problem showed up in my my lane, so I guess I gotta own it. And the problem is that they don't, we don't actually give ourselves the time and space and energy to work on our design, on our strategy. And so as a result, when you walk into most places, it's like, oh yeah, we're implementing this and we're doing that. How? Why did you pick that first? What are you doing after that? How are you gonna know if you're successful? Um, did you actually set a very clear goal or is this just implementing something that you were told was a jump drive? Okay, great. That's why it looks like that. So we actually have to just give ourselves and be, t- be intentional about our time and how we spend it. And that's going to be one of the most strategic things you can do. You all need meeting windows that actually don't have a terrible agenda. You need space. The other piece that really uh, is getting in the way is that the design of how we structure our work is based on this assumption that we are, you know, we, K-12. All right, great. You're going to do that. And then boom, career the rest of your life. You're gonna go into community college, technical, great. You're gonna do those first and then boom, the rest of your life you're gonna work. Higher ed even, we assume that it's only for 18 to 22 year olds and the rest of your life is just gonna work. And that is just not true. If there was one thing I could banish in this world, it would be the question of is college for everyone? Because it's extremely problematic. It assumes that you make that decision once in your life at 18 years old and that is it, you are now not a college person. That is a problem. I know that personally. My father was one of those people who was asked that question and didn't think it was for him, so he joined the military. And after he leaves the Marine Corps after Vietnam, he now has to figure out how he's going to support his family. So then he goes to farrier school. That's not surprising to you. He's weird. My family's weird. You know that, right? Um, And so he becomes a horseshoer. And then my brother and I come along. And then when I'm two years old. One day, my dad goes to work and a horse flips over on him and paralyzes him from the waist down like that. Millions of people go through that, went through that during COVID, where you could no longer work and and use your body to earn an income to support your family. And you had to transition into the knowledge economy. And so if we think that is college for everyone. And at one moment in your life, we are basically writing off an entire generation of people. Thankfully, my dad crashed in his GI Bill, and he actually went to Montana State University and got a bachelor's in computer science. Now things are a little more complicated when you're in a wheelchair in terms of work, but so it didn't change like the economics of our household that much. But he also, while he was there, rediscovered who he was and that he could be an athlete regardless. And so he started playing wheelchair basketball, doing races and stuff and he wins the world championship in wheelchair racing while he's an undergraduate because that's what education does. It's not just in the classroom. It also can remind you who you are and who you can be. And so when we think about design, I just wanna underscore the future of higher education and the future of education in general has to be based on this idea that you will come and go when you want to grow and evolve. It is not just one moment in time. And we have to banish the idea that is college for everyone is an acceptable question because college actually means more than just what happens inside the classroom. It's about people achieving their full potential. And we wanna make sure that everyone can achieve their full potential regardless of the family they're born into or the neighborhood they grow up in this is what the future is going to look like. We are going to come and go and we are going to evolve over time. And so we have to change our systems and not think about, you only walk through one door of being enrolled, or you're in the box of a degree program. We're often shopping an old, like we got kicking this old MBA program up the hill, trying to see what do we got to do to get in this car. We have to actually think about what industries need to happen or are going to be happening and how we can evolve for that. So the solutions are actually pretty simple. First, uh, everything that's new actually requires a team. And I don't mean a meeting. I don't mean a committee. Committees are about communication. Teams are about action. The difference, a team has a goal. They have data that they look at consistently once every six months, once every few months, once a year, and you're measuring whether you're doing it. It's cross-functional. And you spend your time not with these terrible agendas. You start with, what did we learn from the last month of our work that we would do differently? You create a generative space where people can pitch and catch ideas. So number one is a team for everything that's new. The second is that the most innovative thing in all of innovation world and for education and higher ed is a post-it note. There's this very basic concept called process mapping, and you've probably heard of it. It's like, I didn't invent it, it's, it's not so radical. It's super simple and each of you can do it today. You take a post-it note, and I would recommend what you do is you invite people into a room after, after you engage in some empathy conversation. So the first step of design is empathy. You gotta actually know what the problem is, right? So you send folks out, you're gonna talk to three students and ask what, what if you had a magic wand based on your educational experience, what would you change? What, th- what, what thing was hard for you? And you come back and everyone puts what they heard from those three students on a post-it note. There's a forcing function, it's small. I heard it was financial aid holds. I heard that communication's overwhelming. I didn't actually know what the expectations were. The advising office is impossible to get in with, right? Or I, I still don't understand Canva, right? Whatever, um, or Canvas. Um, so you find out what the problems are and then you just pick one. You pick one because it's all about really the community, the purpose, the inspiration. So you just pick something that everyone sees. You'll start seeing very clearly that there's coalescence around this one issue. And you invite everyone who works adjacent to that one issue into a room. And you're gonna play some sweet jams. I recommend like 60s, 70s soul music, right? Like September is a great way to start start the day with the song September. Um, and you maybe serve some snacks, right? And you just have a bunch of post-it notes. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna just process map. We're gonna map what this one process is. It's a specific thing. Not You're not doing the whole thing, right? So if it's financial aid holds, how do you even set one, okay? We start putting up, what do I think I set one? And then when a student gets a financial aid hold, what is their experience? So that they get an email, okay, great. And then what do we expect from them? You start like mapping out the expectations and also what's really happening in the institution. Because right now we have a fantasy of what our systems look like. It's adorable. Magical thinking is fun, but it is actually not accurate. And until you actually get people in a room together to see what your system is, you cannot fix it. New ideas brought into a toxic system will not work. You have to actually see the system for how it is. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And if you do it in a community that is actually kind of like feels good and fun, it reminds people that change can happen because you're gonna see low hanging fruit pop up that day. You can actually handle in the room. And because everyone's in a room together, we all become very clear and there's no need to go out and get buy-in. We all saw it. We can't lie about it. (laughs) And you'll start building more relationship. It feels inspiring because you remember why you like to do this work. You like to actually solve problems for students. We care passionately about students because we were once a student and someone changed our life. And the reason we work in this work is because we wanna pay it forward. You remind people about that. You bring them together in a sense of community and they are clear about purpose. It's super easy. We do this all the time in our work and Again, it literally all it takes is like two, three hours. You just declare a meeting. You don't need to be high up on the org chart to do it. You're gonna car- carve out an afternoon. And between now and a month from now, everyone's gonna engage in five conversations with students to just find out what, what areas are of challenge. And you're gonna come with that list. And then we're gonna put them up on the wall and we're gonna see, wow, over in this area on financial aid or over here um, inside the classroom about the students understanding their assignments. That's the issue. Okay, great. Now we're gonna process map that. Just pick one at a time. And then you set those up. You do them quarterly. Within a year, you will have a fundamentally different organization because it will be a space that people believe it's a learning organization. Then when we find a problem, it doesn't just mean, oh God, this is more work and I don't have time for this. So I guess I just gotta like leave it. It's it, it becomes a space where it's actually cool to say, I have a problem. That means we get to have one of those cool sessions. I get to hang out with my peeps, play those sweet jams. And what you do is, you have the superintendent, you have the principal, you have the president come in at the end of the day and say, cause they're not in there. You know, they come in and say, what did we learn? Not, what did we do wrong? What did we learn? And then let, it, it's like popcorn. People are like, oh my God, I had no idea this was happening. I didn't know this department didn't have access to this data. It is magic and it's free. Here's an example. This is from Michigan State. What we did is uh, they gathered together in, for one afternoon to try and map out the first three months of when a student comes to campus, just to find out how they were showing up. The first time everyone had been in a room together that worked in student success. And there's all these different things that happen. And what they saw that really struck them is at the end of that day, they saw that there were 450 post-it notes where it said emails, which means they were sending 450 emails in a three month window of time to every incoming student. And for all the rest of my institutions, if you don't know what your number is, it's 500. We're bad at it. We're bad at email. I don't need to sell you on that. You know this, right? We will ruin Snapchat. We will ruin TikTok. We are not great. So the other part is they found that there were 50 types of holds a student could have on their account that the institution didn't know about. Shocking. Students were experiencing them. They were stopped from registering. The institution didn't know. So now my camp, my other campuses, they map their financial aid holds. It turns out it's the wild west. Do you know how hard it is to set a financial aid hold? Sneeze. That's that's as hard. You, anyone can do it. There's no actual gateway. It's why we have so many. It's just like the Wild West, right? We also map transfer. What's that experience really like? Major change. Declaring a major. What's this like? And slowly over time, you discover, this is what I mean by the institution not being designed around students. And it's invigorating because people feel like, oh my gosh, like in this room in particular, there were several times where people were like, hey, I don't have access to that data. And then someone said, What's your email address? I'm gonna send it to you right now. My department has that. Boom. You don't. One of the things I see happening is that smart and strategic and capable people spend half their time trying to convince their peers about what work is the right work. What a waste of time. Bring us together, do a COVID bubble if you need to, or whatever, like, but actually we can do this and we can actually address the burnout issue that we're all str- struggling with while we do it. The other things I wanna arm you with are really for you as you go back to think about and to tee up as questions for folks at home that I think are most powerful. These are the things I've learned that are the questions the most innovative places ask themselves all the time. First, how do you treat new ideas? Do you have a strategy for, for how new ideas are treated, new programs, new initiatives? Or is it just like you gotta like start from scratch and figure it out? At some places, they actually have a a, a space in the institution that's like a brainstorming space. When a new idea comes in here, we're going to actually come together and iterate some places actually have like a job where the person's role is just to actually help with the strategy part for that. Okay, new idea in your in your area. Great. I'm just going to help you with some of the tactics. Um, the other thing is I would ask, how do we talk about them? If we don't know where good ideas are coming from, it, then we won't get more of them. So one, where was the last cool new thing? where did it come from? Is it because someone went to a conference and they got inspired? Great, let's do more of that. Is it because they were part of a community of practice and they got inspired? Great, let's do more of that. Is it because that team had a retreat? Okay, let's do that. Is it because there was an offsite? Is it because somebody took a vacation, and just like left? Then, okay, let's do more of that. You you need to know where good ideas are coming from and you need a strategy about how you're gonna treat them. Don't, when something new comes up or a new solution, don't just start debating it. Yes and is the framework to use. Yes, that's an idea and I'm gonna add to it. It makes it generative. So that's number one, is how is our organization, how's our school treat new ideas? The second is how do we talk about failure? How do we treat failure? Every institution, every organization needs an autopsy process. You got lots of failures. When do you actually take the time to take a step back and think, if we had to do it over again, what would we do different? Is it, because what I see all the time is, hey, we created a new system for students and we never talked to a single student. Wow, why don't we actually just create a space where we actually unpack what happened, what went wrong, and then we can, t- we can strategize about how going forward, part of our calendar invitations for these kinds of experiences are gonna embed solutions. You, can, you can't solve problems that you aren't aware of. Everyone has to think about how they're going to treat failure. And I would argue you need social safety where it's a learning space. Failure is the best teacher. The other last piece is habits. Think about the goal that you're being asked to deliver, the outcome that you are responsible for, especially when we think about how we evolve and serve our, new, our students in the new normal better. And I want you to go back to your team and I want you to ask this question. If we were the kind of organization or group or people who actually accomplished that, what kinds of habits would we have? You will not be able to accomplish what you need to by doing it sporadically. You need systems. And systems are actually just habits for, you, for, for organizations, systems and process, right? That's another word for it. We have in my world commencement. We have in new, the first day of term. We have spring break. We have once a year, people go on a retreat. What kinds of habits would you have if you were successful? How often would you look at your data? What kind of data would you look at? How often would you meet? kinds of agendas would you have? You actually engage in a brainstorm together about the kinds of habits that would set you up to be successful. Because I know that you have important things that you're being asked to do and there are big goals, but you will not rise to the level of your goals. You will only fall to the level of your systems. And that's habits. So if you wanna accomplish things, if you wanna change things, which I know that you do, we have to think, take a step back and actually work on our work. And I would ask that you consider canceling a meeting next week or emptying an agenda and just saying, we're going to actually just create a brainstorm space. You can also abolish committees. Did you know you could do that? Nobody disappeared. It just literally was fine. And also, if there's someone who's a wet sock, who's a part of your committee, you can just uninvite them. And if you don't know who the wet sock is... (laughs) I mean, I didn't say it. So... I just wanna arm you with the kinds of questions that will help you as you think about how to innovate and how to adapt for your students now and in the future. I hope this has been useful for you. Generally with what I share, sift through and find the stuff that served you and ignore everything else. But the last thing I would tell you is that you heard a bit about my story and it sounds rough and bumpy, but I will tell you I wouldn't change a thing because every month when I pay my student loans, it is a instant gratitude practice because it reminds me that it was totally worth it. I remember being terrified that it wasn't gonna work out for me. And I was afraid to bet on myself and I did. And it's every month a reminder to bet on myself. And so higher education changed my life and I wanted to change the lives of millions more people. And I know that this has been about higher education, but I feel like it's really useful for education, for K-12 to see how we wrestle with things and to know how much we have in common. So I hope it has served you today. And I just thank you for the opportunity.